All right, so tonight I'd like to explore this, continue this topic of the, the three poisons, the three defilements or the three um, unwholesome roots, different ways of saying the same thing. Now, when you hear the word poisons, that you know, has a certain punch to it. But as I explored last week, it's helpful to then reframe it so you don't go into this kind of heavy-duty self-judgment and, and harshness around yourself as you explore it to keep more of a, a place of interest and lightness around it. So these three, we're doing groups of threes this year, and then we're starting this, this three, these three defilements, three poisons, and focusing on greed this week or this month. And it's tricky as we explore it, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, because you know we don't want to be greedy. We don't want to feel ourselves as a greedy person. So that sets us up already with this kind of adversarial relationship to that very experience. When we're fighting and judging that experience, we can't really see it very clearly. Our judgment distorts the very way we're perceiving it, the way we're understanding it. And we tend to judge that aspect of ourselves, which also prevents us from seeing the more subtle aspects of that greed and how it shows up. That being said, you know, it's you don't want to force yourself through something that's Painful, you want to have a quality of, of gentleness and opening at a pace that allows your heart to, to open to that. Now, if we have that, that sense of, of judging greed, then we also tend to preve- prevent us from seeing it. We repress aspects of it. We might even use apply hatred, one of the other defilements against the greed. We hate that aspect of ourselves. That's all really counterproductive. We just traded out one of these kalashas, one of these defilements, for another one. But the underlying process that's generating them is still intact. Okay, that's the point of it. It's what's the underlying process that's being that's creating this expression of, of greed for in this moment. Now, if we start to see that more clearly, then then we start to. It's not so much willpower that's stopping it. It's much more of a quality of of wisdom. Wisdom is starting to see clearly, and that seeing, it starts to let go and and relax from us. Now, when greed arises, can we start to relate to it as a gift? As a gift, like, oh, here's something that's showing something unseen, unknown. This kind of power of what's unconscious, power of what's kind of driving our suffering, is expressed through this aspect of greed. Now, if we can learn to not judge that greed and not try to, it's not different, not judging, it's not the same as, you know, following it or getting lost in it, but just, okay, let me see what is here. It actually becomes this, this really precious entryway into seeing something which is really hard to understand about ourselves. This is the power of delusion, one of the other kalashas, kind of the, the big one, really, that we'll talk about in a couple, in two more months. It's a little bit like if we had an illness that was giving us all these different symptoms and we would be complaining about the symptoms, but some of those symptoms actually help us diagnose the illness. You know, and sometimes you hear about people who had a particular symptom that when the doctor heard that, they're able to say, okay, this is the the disease and here's the treatment for it. So it's similar to that. If we can start to look at greed just as a symptom of something underneath it, what's that underlying process? That's creating this this expression of greed and, and the suffering connected with it. 
So what does greed help us learn? What does it start to teach us? What does it reveal if we start to use it as this gift? And it's almost, we can think of it as this underlying perception or this place that we perceive from. This underlying logic, assumptions, how we create the whole world based on that, that perception. Because it's usually, from a Greek perspective, it's coming from a place of separation, of isolation, of distance, of in, uh, lack of, of, of lack of insufficiency. There's an assumption of me being completely separate and isolated from everyone else and everything else in the world. And so from that perspective, it kind of makes sense to be greedy. Right? If I'm separate from everyone else, then I have to really get my own. I want to protect my own and get my own. Our happiness is based on, it seems like it's based on what we own and what we possess, those experiences. And if those aren't there, then we don't, we're not happy. The saying that you know, the person who dies with the most toys wins, it's kind of that perspective. Right? And this is the essential confusion about really what's true happiness and a true contentment. And that's sometimes when people ask me, what's the purpose of practice? I often like to say, or what is enlightenment? It's understanding that sense of peace, ease, and joy that's independent upon the circumstances or situations of your life. Okay, the possessions, the circumstances. To, and to discover that. What is that? That peace that's independent. Because usually our peace often is very conditional. It's based upon you know, having possessions or having this thing or having the other thing. Or as we'll explore next week or next month, um, from a hatred perspective, not having something, that pushing away. If I get rid of that, then I'll be happy. Right? So, of course, there's this relativeness to it. There's a preference. Of course, we all want to be healthy. We all want to have good experiences, you know, good ways of making a living, good relationships. So it's not denying all that, but it's when we become attached to it, when we become dependent upon it. We don't have this resiliency to meet life when it doesn't give us the, the optimum. This is a very deep pattern. You know, it's very conditioned in us. I remember hearing a story about the Dalai Lama who apparently really likes technology. He likes gadgets. And he was driving kind of through this, this from, from where he's staying to this conference. And every day they drove past this street that had all these kind of stores with gadgets in them. And he found himself really wanting things to even know what they were. So how often do we have that, that sense of, of wanting? Sometimes I... I go to like uh, like a garage sale or Goodwill, and I'm just kind of looking around. I'm wanting something to want. You know, give me something I want, you know, even though I have no idea what that might be. It's like that that unsatiable hunger. And it's it, when you kind of look at it with a humorous standpoint, it is kind of funny how that hunger keeps going, keeps driving us. So when we start to see this expression of, of greed in our own experience as, as we explored last week through investigation, through just opening to the experience, learning not to judge it, or just, okay, here's greed arising. Can I experience it? Can I feel what it is like? It's a body experience. 
How does it shape my very thoughts? How does it shape my emotions? What's the story that it's telling me? All those kind of expressions gets us to start to understand greed as a a process that arises. If we can let go, at least for temporarily, the object of that greed, this allows that to happen much more clearly. Because we're really fixated upon what we're wanting, that kind of becomes like our whole system kind of focuses in on that. We don't have much perspective of what it's actually like to fill that. So what's the generic expression of greed? What does it feel like as a body experience? What does it feel like as a mind, thoughts, emotions? So as we do that, we start to realize, we start to get to know greed. You know, we got to see it in more and more deep ways. So we actually get to know it in our, in our bones, what it feels like to greet, to have a greedy thought or a greedy expression. And seeing the dukkha or the suffering that's associated with it. Because a sense of lack of not ever being satiated, always wanting more. And that particularly that, that kind of deep feeling that if I don't get that, something is really wrong with me. I won't be ever be happy. Right? There's there's suffering with that. As you tune to that, you start to see that expression of, of suffering. So you notice I'm not saying don't be greedy. I'm saying get to know your greed. Get to explore it. Because I trust that the very capacity to open to it and see it, you start to see, well, there's some suffering with this. And maybe that's not something I want to put more energy into it. And this way, it starts to it starts to not make so much sense to continue to follow those greedy patterns. Of course, this often happens after a long time of conscious willingness to turn toward that greed, to explore it, to feel it, to sense it. But at some point, it starts to be not so much that we're letting go of the greed, but more it starts to let go of us. It starts to fall away. Not be, almost not because of a conscious choice, but more of a clarity of seeing. Like if I had a place in my, my bedroom in the nighttime when I go into the bathroom and I kept stubbing my toe upon a uh, corner, I would soon learn to walk around it. It's kind of like you just feel, okay, that's gonna, that pathway is going to lead to more pain, more discomfort, more suffering. This famous poem, at least in Dharma circles, called Kindness, I'd love to read this one around compassion. But this this poem is so powerful because it really speaks to all, kind of all types, many different expressions of Dharma anyway. So as I talk about that, I'm going to read that for you, for those who haven't heard it. We think of kindness as, and this, this sense of, of sorrow as being greed. When you hear this. So kindness, by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with, this, with the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till you, your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Now that poem, I wanted to share that in the context of this exploration of greed, because so often we start to open to the fact that we have this, this expression of greed as a human being. You know, there's that kind of seeing it, but we're also kind of pushing it away at the same time, not really opening to it. And the way Naomi Shiabnai spoke of so beautifully is that turning toward sorrow, turning toward sadness. You start to see the size of the cloth, seeing how, how deep those threads go. It's the same thing with greed. If we stop resisting it and just say, okay, this is the expression of my heart right now. I don't have to judge myself for it. I don't have to be blame myself for it. That's arising. I just need to open to it and understand it. That the very understanding itself is what allows us to, to release it, to see through it. To seeing that size of the cloth till your voice catches the thread of all the sorrows. You can just see how greed just is permeating our culture, our family. Again, it's, there's no blame, there's no thing to be ashamed of, but simply to understand it. And as we open to it in that way, we also start to see the suffering of that. We see the deep pain of that, of the hopes we place upon something. And then when that something comes, the hope is still, the, the hunger is still there underneath. And then what only makes sense is non-greed. Only kindness makes sense. And this way, only non-greed starts to make sense. So this is this very beautiful way that through our practice, learning how to, to meet this moment, to open to it, to sense it clearly, that actually allows us to learn from it becomes this gift that starts to transform us. That's why we often, sometimes I talk about wisdom, not as something that we can learn from a book or from a, a talk, but really what we can learn from our own direct experience. That's one of the things I, I appreciated even from the very f first time I started to practice is that the Dharma teacher wasn't telling me this is what you should believe. It's more like, this is how you, sh you can look. This is how you can sense. This is how you can see for yourself if this is true or not. And here's some good things to look at and see if they're true or not. And as I did that, there's such a sense of, of ownership of my own practice, ownership of my own path. I think that's what draws many of us to this. It's not this kind of top-down dissemination of knowledge. It's like 
See for yourself. Where is there suffering and greed? I mean, take, you can be like a scientist. Anything I say, you can think, okay, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to prove him wrong and I'm going to see for myself how this shows up in my own mind and body. Right? And if you find you're wrong, then that's, if I'm wrong, then that's great. If the Buddha's wrong, that's great too. You've seen that for yourself. But if you see that there's a resonance, there's a truth to it, then you own that in a very different way, the way that's, that becomes unshakable. So it's so helpful to understand our patterns of suffering, our patterns of greed. It's equally important to understand the patterns of liberation, of freedom, of releasing the heart. The Buddha famously said that he taught one thing and one thing only, and that was dukkha and the end of dukkha. I know that's two things, but you know. <laughs> but that's such a simple way of phrasing it, but also I think it's so helpful that we Sometimes we get too focused on the suffering side of things. Suffering, suffering, dukkha, greed, hatred, I guess, more things I need to judge about myself. And we forget about the part of liberation, of that easing of the heart. Remember, the Buddha's followers at the time of the Buddha was, were often easily identified because they had a sense of, of joy and contentment and peace about them. And that's how the practice is meant to be. So non, now let's go into non-greed, this expression of non-greed. It's really a very different perspective than the, the place that comes from, that greed comes from. And the non is, is really important, the non-sense of it, because it's really pointing to this completely different perspective. So this perspective you can talk about is the view or the underlying assumptions or underlying deep beliefs. It's really the framework that we base our whole life on. It's really how we create the world, how we interpret the world is through that framework. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a simple thing to say, but it's just let that sink in. That the, way, the very now way that you're perceiving the world is a function of your history, is a function of your experiences that you've had, the way you interpret the world, for better or worse. Right? We can misinterpret things. We can see things through our lens of racism, of through bias, of through discrimination. We can, or we can see it through a place of clarity, of seeing things how they actually are. And we, when we live from a perspective of separation, of isolation, of, of that's really a sense of self that is isolated and is discreet and always has to be defended and protected, the very way we view the world or perceive the world aligns to that fact. Right? How often have you ever felt maybe there's something you kind of judge about yourself and you tend to interpret other people as judging that, even though they may have no idea that's there? It's like, oh, they must see that part of me. And, I'm, and it's really they're just saying something and you, and you reinterpret it to align to that reality. Versus when we start to see, so from that perspective, it makes sense. Greed makes complete sense from a place of separation. Now, non-greed flows from a place of wisdom. You know, how world is created from that place of, of a different perspective. So let's kind of flesh out that underlying, that different fundamental perspective. So we can, this is where the words kind of start to fail us because it's pointing to a place beyond words. So that's an important piece, is that there's a, 
way our words and our ideas and our concepts are really, we learn them from that place of separation. So it's really embedded in that. That's why often we look at Buddhist terms like we talk about greed, then we talk about non-greed. Right? So instead of defining it, it's more like what it's not. Because it gives us less for our minds to latch onto. If our minds latch onto something, it's easy to kind of not realize that we've kind of reinserted that old view, that old perspective. So non-separation, in a sense of non-self, of harmony, to kind of dovetail with the last, the last three months around the three characteristics, it's really being in harmony with those three characteristics of, imper- of dukkha, of impermanence, and non-self. Really seeing that as a as a expression of how things actually are. Now, when we don't, this is this is a kind of a helpful kind of mini sutta, the distortions of the mind. That these four, O oh monks, monks, nuns, practitioners, are distortions of perception, distortions of thoughts, distortions of you. So sensing no change in the changing. Sensing no change in the changing. Sensing pleasure in suffering. Assuming self where there is no self. Sensing the unlovely as lovely. So these four, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there is no self, Sensing the unlovely as lovely. Okay, from that perspective, greed kind of makes a lot of sense, right? If things are, when I don't realize things are always in flux, hey, I can just kind of glom onto things. You know, I can, if I'm re- confused about what is really truly pleasurable, what really has a sense of contentment versus kind of a temporary transient pleasure, you know, if I'm confused about that, yeah, greed makes sense. The sense of, of me who's isolated and separate. I want to have more toys than you do. I want to be have more than you do. You know, the scarcity, all that stuff starts to arise. Sensing what's unlovely is lovely. So this is what I mean by noticing when greed arises, okay, what's the underlying perception that's operating that allows that greed to arise? And the three characteristics are a nice kind of touch point to kind of go through. What's my relationship to change right now? What's my relationship to dukkha? What's my relationship to to that sense of self, sense of me? And the, this little sutta goes on to talk about non-greed, that they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what's changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self and what is without self. And they see the unloveliest self as such. They see the unloveliest, unloveliest such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. Okay, so their actions flow from this place. There's a different way of, of experience in life. There's a sense of ease. There's a sense of peace that starts to arise. It's not dependent upon circumstances in the same way. There's two ways we can kind of describe. There's different ways, but here's two I'm going to just touch on for the, the last little bit of time together. Describe that 
kind of outflow that expression. And that's generosity and equanimity. Okay, generosity and equanimity. Now, generosity is an interesting one, too, because we can throw out that word, and depending on our relationship to it, we can have a lot of kind of shame about it. Okay, I'm not generous enough. I'm not, you know, I don't give enough. You know, the teacher talks about Donna, and, oh, no, I'm not, you know, there's all these things, these kind of ways we can go into that place of self-implosion or self-defining. So we have to also notice what's really, what's meant by true generosity? How can we really practice it? There's a instruction as you're giving, giving dana or giving, being generous is to reflect uh, before you give, while you're giving, and afterward. And the, the, really the purpose of that is it really helps to kind of connect with the, the really the simple contentment, the pleasure, the sense of happiness of giving and, and that expression of giving. What does it feel like? I'm going to give something to someone, then as I give it, what's it like to actually give it? And then reflecting upon that after you've done that kind of enhances it. And we can also notice what's our intention behind it. I remember Sharon Salzberg, when she used to come here annually to, to offer teachings, she gave an example that the same exact action can be really coming from different intentions. Like she wrote in a number of books, and let's say she gives the book out publicly to someone. It's like, here, Beth, here's a book. right? So choosing to give out in this public way, you know, maybe it's just spontaneously generous, or maybe it's like, hey, everyone, look how generous I am. You know, it could be coming from different motivations. I don't have a book for you tonight, sorry. <laughs> so just kind of, that's how that, that deep honesty that the practice starts to give us. So you can see, okay, I can feel when I'm not lined up all the way, right? And if we can get over that fact of using that deeper seeing to judge ourselves in deeper ways, in more sophisticated ways, instead of doing that, just say, oh, isn't that interesting? There's the judging mind. There's the comparing mind. Isn't that funny how deep that is, what it wants to say? So it becomes lighter. It doesn't come so personal. It's that, that personalization, that's where it starts to hurt. Sometimes playing with the sense of being, how conditional is your generosity? If I give you something, will you give me something in return? You know, I'm going to give it to you if you give me a nice thank you note or appreciation. Sometimes it's fun to play with generosity when no one even knows you've done it. You just kind of offer it and you kind of fade away. The Buddha, when he first started to teach someone, when he wanted to come to, to learn to practice, he would often start them off with generosity generosity and sila and ethics. Because when you think about it, when you're, before you started to practice, you know, if your mind was all like mine, there's a sense of being kind of self-absorbed and there's all these kind of mixed intentions with how I acted in the world. And all that created a certain level of, of busyness or churned upness internally. My thoughts would be kind of always trying to manage you know, is it okay to take this extra cookie or to shade the truth or do these different things? And so by establishing the practice and, and generosity, it starts to 
automatically start to move us beyond our kind of self-isolated, self-obsessed perspective and consider everyone else. Now, we have to include ourselves with that. Sometimes people overgive. They give more than they should or they, they diminish themselves. I don't deserve it, but everyone else does. If you hear yourself saying that, it's a good time to pause and say, let me, let me open to that. Let me experience that. It can be very simple. And just as you, as you go through, uh, you go to a potluck and you go through the line, you feel oh, there's a, a beautiful dish. I think a lot of people are going to want it. You know, how much do you take of that dish? You just take a little bit so there's awareness that everyone else may also want to partake. Just that little sense of connection to others. And then sila, you know, is also the, the sense of, of ethical behavior. If I act in an ethical way, there's a way I can start to relax in myself. My mind starts to become more quiet. These generosity and ethics help us become more receptive to actually turning inward to practicing the meditation, which is the third element. Those the three those are the three pillars we'll talk about later this year. So generosity is it's often a natural expression of the awakened heart. You know, famous story from the Zen tradition. Rokan, a Zen master, lived in the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening, a thief, a thief visited the hut only to discover that there was nothing in it to steal. Rokan returned and caught him. You may have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler, and you should not return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered. He took the clothes and slunk away. Rokan sat naked, watching the moon. Poor fellow, he mused. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. It's pointing toward this different perspective. You know, even though the very clothes on his back this Zen teacher gave away, there's still that sense of, of deep sufficiency, this deep ease, and just the realizing this beauty of this, this moon was completely lost to this thief. For some reason, I have completely scrambled my notes tonight. Here we are. Okay, so generosity is this expression, this this perspective that non non greed naturally flows from. Another aspect is equanimity. Okay, equanimity. That's one of these words that is so essential to our practice, but also it's a word that's easy to kind of get a little distorted around. Okay, that equanimity. Sometimes we think it means I'm kind of shut off to everything. I'm equally far away from everything. I'm not affected by anything. It's like, okay, I'm kind of dull. There's nothing that really moves me. And that's really a, a misinterpretation of it. I think a better way to think of it is being equally close to all things. There's kind of an equal sense of intimacy to all things. And the way that works, instead of it being me who's trying to be close to everything, I let go of that sense of me and that sense of equanimity arises. And equanimity is part of the Brahmi Viharas, the divine abode, so it 
tends to travel with compassion and metta and sympathetic joy. It's also That's also a nice checkpoint to see, if I'm really opening to equanimity a lot, how is my compassion, how is my heart in the midst of that? You know, is that, that closed off? The equanimity also, though, starts to give us this, this way of being balanced with whatever life brings to us. It's like, okay, I can meet this suffering, I can meet this joy, and there's this, this part of us which is able to simply open to both of those, to sense both of those, to allow them to, to be here without argument, without trying to fix it or change it. Equanimity is pointing in some ways that the capacity of mindfulness, or we can sometimes talk about awareness, kind of the, the thing behind mindfulness, is it, it doesn't really care what is here in the moment. You know, there's a part of us that just meets it. It doesn't care what's here, but it's going to meet it fully. It's going to open to it fully. And yet, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't get, it's like it, it's able to hold this whole array of being human, including things like greed. That's one of the, the teachings that we can, we can explore with greed is when we have a lot of charge around it, it actually is showing us, oh, here's a place I can develop the quality of balance or equanimity in relationship to it. Now, equanimity also has this, this just noticing the, the coming and goings of things with ease. And this is often a way of we kind of sober up around the fact of impermanence. There's these five reflections, again, from the, the suttas, these five facts that one should reflect upon, whether you're a woman or a man, lay or ordained, which are the five, that I'm subject to aging, I've not gone beyond aging, that this is the first fact that one should reflect on often. The second one is, I am subject to illness. I've not gone beyond illness. The third one is, I'm subject to death. have not gone beyond death. Fourth is, I will grow indifferent, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. And five, I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or evil, to that I will fall heir. So when you first hear those, it's like, well, that's kind of a downer. Because <laughs> it's kind of pointing out all these kind of limitations of being human. All these kind of the bad news. And yet, if you start to open to that, we open and stop, you know, we learn how not to, to fight with that fact, but just realize this is the nature of things. This is the nature of my life, the nature of everyone who's here in the room, that we will we're age, we will become ill, we will die, that we'll, things that we find dear will lose. Right? So what that does, it helps us become a little disenchanted with the lure that greed points to us. It's like this greed really has this allure that's saying, you're never going to lose this, it's going to be with you forever. You're never going to get sick. You're going to be happy and healthy the rest of your life. You're not going to age. You're not even going to die. It's kind of the, the message that greed kind of points to us. And so it helps us become a little disillusioned with that message. And the other side of it, there's this preciousness that starts to come forth, this preciousness of relating to life. Like, wow, here's a moment of health. 
Isn't that wonderful that I can meet that? I realize it's not going to last forever. A moment of life, a moment of beauty, something pleasurable. I can realize this is, I can really enjoy this, but I I realize at some point it will change, it will end, it will fall away. And then as we do that, then, as as Naomi spoke of, only kindness makes sense, only non-greed starts to make sense. And that's this pathway of not forcing our way through it or adopting new beliefs, but just seeing directly for our own, our own experience. How does this show up? How does this show up in our lives? Not in an abstract idea, but actually in the nitty-gritty of our lives, in our relationships, in our work, in our bodies, in our minds. As we start to see that more and more clearly, the path just starts to unfold. Shows to open up. All right, can we just sit quietly for a couple moments and then we'll have a, a chance for some questions and I'll talk about the homework. Thank you for your kind attention. So the homework for this this week. So it's pointing toward exploring this nature of greed in a non-judgmental manner. Right? So that's that's a key, is that if we find ourselves judging the greed, maybe looking at the judgment, exploring that is where we need to start. But as you explore it and open to it, step back and notice what's the underlying perspective that this greed is flowing from. Now, what is the logic? What's the beliefs? What's the emotional beliefs that make this make this greed make sense? So as you do that, there's going to be this whole kind of different layers. There's going to be the psychological. There's going to be the mental. There's going to be the family, cultural. All those things are arise. And there's also going to be this much deeper existential way it defines who you are, that creates that sense of who you are. And that sense of who you are, you can start to notice some of the fundamental aspects of it are insufficiency. There's a sense of lack. Is I really who I am is is defined by that lack? Or maybe you'll find you'll find maybe something different. You're finding your own expression around that. So what's that core perspective that allows? Um, so then, from noticing that, then what core perspective allows non-greed to arise? Right. What core perspective? Right. So sometimes this is this sometimes can seem like, well, that's a long ways away. It's going to take forever. But as, as Rodney Smith used to talk about that, that vertical question, you can almost drop that right into the middle of this moment and see that it's a, there's an immediacy. That perspective is actually available at any moment. It's actually right here. It just where we kind of are so confused about it, we don't see it. It's really something has to be released, something has to be let go of. So what has to be released to allow that perspective to be present? And then what are the expressions in your life, really in the concrete workings of your life, of non-greed? What's the expressions of non-greed? Because 
I would bet that each one of you has many moments of non-greed in your life. Start to notice those. Start to highlight those. Start to appreciate how those arise and notice that perspective. All right, does that make sense? All right, so you can give me a a 10-page written report. (laughs) All right, so we have a chance now for any questions or sharing you might have. So both here in person, you can raise your hand, and we have a mic so they can hear you online, or you can raise your um, or online. You can raise your virtual hand. First question is always the hardest. Not always, sometimes. All right, Beth, come on up. So I have, um, am I facing you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Hello. Um, so I have a, uh, uh, a story of greed this week. Um, and if you were my priest, I'd be saying it's a confession, right? <laughs> but, um, and it is a confession, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's much, bigger than that. Uh, so I have had a, um, a sense pleasure desire for a, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, a flower that is on the property or was on the property of this um, garden center that I frequent. I drive by it a lot. And it's in their, it's in their yard. It's not for sale. But I wanted it. And it was a it was a, a giant um, allium, an onion that was a really rare. Hmm. And I've tried to grow them myself, and the critters in my yard eat it, and it's a long history. And I got one once, and it died. And I had it in a vase, and it was so pretty. So that's the that's the hook, right? I had this once. I had that sense pleasure of watching it, and then my dog ate it, and disappeared and I had to throw it away. So there's this allium in this yard and I've been driving by it and I've been thinking like about trespassing and theft. And I've been like saying, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll go talk to them. I'll buy from them or they'll, they know me, they'll give it to me. All these really in, in my previous religious life, it'd be like the, all these arrogant thoughts and all these sinful thoughts, you know, like I'm thinking about breaking laws and commandments and precepts and and it doesn't even occur to me that I'm thinking about breaking all of these really ethical rules that I try to follow. I'm just enjoying the thought that it's going to sit on my credenza one day. <laughs> so I um I got wisdom voice said um you want to steal that from these people, right? You want to steal that? Not not in a shameful way. It didn't come through that way. It was just like 
you're not a thief. You don't want to steal this. So I parked in front of it, and I looked at it, and I did the, the five remembrances, and mm. I stared at it, and I, re- I remembered to myself, this thing is dead. And I think, what is the teacher? Is it Ajahn Chah who had the, the glass, the really pretty glass, and he said to me, this is already broken? I don't know which teacher it was, but um, that helped me mm. remember this is dead. And it was so wild. It suddenly, it's just gone. Mm. Like, it's just the desire vanished. The mm. whole, it's like I woke up, right? Mm. And, um, and then the next day I drove by, and it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you, Beth. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. That's a yeah, very powerful story, and it points to just how pervasive that world we've created, you know, of, of wanting is. It's just this very powerful, and we, it's, we're justifying it. We're finding different ways, and it is kind of like we were lost in a dream in that moment. There's like this this illusion that we've woke, we've lost our found our ways into. I've, you know, I could share different stories from my own past, just like this kind of compulsive chasing after things. And it just, when you wake up to it, it's like, oh, this is just, this is, what am I doing here? <laughs> what, you know, what is, is, but in the middle of it, it, it makes complete sense. You know, that traditionally, if you look at the suttas, there's this character called Mara, the, the personification of delusion. And, he was, you know, the way it's, I, I, I hold it kind of a, it's a mythological way of expressing these forces within ourselves. But the Buddha would be always be kind of grappling with this, this Mara character. The Mara would try to trick him and change, change him. So like if you could use that, like Mara tricked me into that, got me into that. That's really, yeah, and then eventually you saw it. And when you, and when you say, I see you, Mara, then, like Mara, in the sutras, like walks away, kind of disappointed and dejected. But, but that's that's the power of that. So, and that's that's really the invitation. Is just the more we do that, we st- we stop being so convinced by the next time it happens. We start to realize, hmm, maybe this this flower might be like that last flower, <laughs> or it might be that pattern. You start to see that. And you start to reflect as you share it like you did. Not only do you help everyone else experience that, you also recounted the suffering of it. I think we could all hear the suffering of that kind of obsessive mind that came up. So thank you for the, the courage to share that. Honesty. Yeah. Make you turn around like that. But um, when you're talking about... Um, as you were just talking, I was saying that that it was a gift. It was like a gift that that was there, and that I was, was happened to be driving by all that. I mean, that I consider that to be um, a gift for me. Absolutely, um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, this this is like that. It's like we get to play with these kind of things because you could have just, you know, the first time you saw it, you could have just grabbed it, but you you kind of worked with it. You, <laughs> she said she almost did, but we we can play with that. We can just kind of like kind of slow down that reaching and grabbing. You know, slow that down over a few minutes or even a few days, and just notice it. Oh, what's it like? I still want that. What is it like? Because it takes a while to really. The more you clearly can see it, 
the more you understand from it. Yeah, thank you, Beth. All right, anyone else like to, you don't have to do any confessionals, that's fine. But <laughs> and online, just raise your virtual hand, and as soon as we see it, we'll call you. Yeah, Beth, the other Beth. This is a Beth night. Um, I don't like this homework. It makes me uncomfortable because um, I kind of know what lay underneath a lot of the greed. Mm. And as you point to a lot, it's a lack. There's a lack of something there. Um, and so my question is, um, so my lack is a lot about like self-worth. Mm. Like I'm just like not enough, which I think a lot of us experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, I, I understand that you can take an alternate perspective and say, what if X were true? What if I were enough just without having to make things perfect, without having to perform in a particular way? What if I were just enough? And so I think my question is, are we supposed to just sort of like believe that hypothetical, just play with that in the Mm -hmm. way that like the philosopher Blaise Pascal would say like, I, I don't know if I believe in God, but I get down on my knees and I pray as if God did exist. Mm-hmm. And that'll kind of bring it into being. I'm just not sure what to do with that, like trusting this alternative that I've never known in my bones to be true. Mm-hmm. Does that does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Just hang out there in case there <laughs> we have some dialogue. It's a, it's a little bit like one of those, my, my father-in-law likes those kind of wooden puzzles or those kind of three-dimensional puzzles, and he's like, it finally figures out a way to make it open up. It's a little bit like that with this pattern. There's different ways to open it up. Well, unlike those puzzles, there's multiple ways. But you have to kind of find what starts to shift it. So sometimes it can be holding the, alter, you know, the, the opposite view and saying, okay, I'm going to act as if this other thing is true. And notice the effects of that. Does that start to allow things to start to shift? Sometimes um, it doesn't work that way, right? You just like, you know, you might, you, you know what you're doing. You outsmart yourself. You can't trick yourself into believing. Sometimes there's, as I've been kind of exploring the last couple of weeks, is more of the path of exhaust that possibility. See for yourself that it, it doesn't work. So that's part, I think that's often, many of us just have to keep trying to see if this, this time this greed will finally make me happy. <laughs> this time it will. That, I know that last time, uh, chocolate chip meant wasn't quite it, but vanilla with swirls, that's going to do it. You know, there's that, you just, you keep noticing it. You know, sometimes what we do is we just kind of ignore it. We don't learn, learn those lessons. You're just going to reflect, like, okay, I really need this. I really wanted it. Now I have it. Oh, I still don't feel good inside. Okay, and then maybe there's this next thing. So eventually you start to, to realize, okay, maybe it's not this external piece. 
And then there's this turning toward that deeper insufficiency. So how you do that, I think, is so helpful. I mean, it's so important, I should say, because we can do it in a way that just kind of reinforces the pain. It becomes unbearable. It sounds like, yeah, I think that's so common. So that's also noticing the puzzle's not opening that way. So how can I turn this around in a way that is actually good news that I'm opening to it? Is actually I open to it in a way that's releasing the suffering as we do it. I don't know why this kind of morbid image comes, but like if we had an infected wound and we were draining it, like it hurts, it smells, it's stinky, but we it feels better afterwards. In the process of draining it, it feels better. So it's a it's a little bit like that that we were kind of. And so how do you do that? It's part of it. I think it's often for myself anyway. It's this combination of kind of seeing the fertility of the old pattern, so that kind of sobers me up that, okay, that's just not working. That's not the right way. At the same time, it gives me the courage to turn toward it in, in the right way. And the right way is often this kind of deep quality of, of sincerity, like, let me just open to this. Let me surrender to this. Okay, maybe if I open to this, I realize this is what comes up for me a lot personally, is that if I felt that since, like in high school, I'll make it more concrete. In high school, I was a very shy, I'm still a shy person, but I was really shy, you know, but, you know, I was, you know, attracted to different other high school, you know, women, girls, but I never, like, approached any of them. And I figure, okay, because I'm, you know, there's something really fundamentally wrong with me. But if I never asked, it could be that that belief wasn't quite true. But if I asked and that turned out to be true, that would be devastating. Does that make sense? It's like if I never really tested it, I can kind of hold out. Well, I haven't really fully tested it. So it's kind of this interesting kind of, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of stuck between these two worlds. So sometimes it's really a willingness to, to test it out, to see. Thank you. That's helpful. Mine is a lot around like that control and managing situations. Yeah. And relinquishing just to see what happens, just to feel that sort of uncertainty, knowing that the control hasn't fixed things, you know, hasn't made me feel like stable and worthwhile, you know, to get out of the house on time or to make sure that the dishwasher is loaded properly, somehow has not made me feel adequate. Yes, that's right. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, testing it in ways. I remember my when I was doing group therapy, my my therapist gave me an assignment that I had to make mistakes because I was so, you know, I don't want to make any mistakes. I want to be the good boy who does the right thing and gets loved because of that. Like, okay, make conscious mistakes. Do things wrong. <laughs> and that was really hard to do because it's like this goes against that condition. So sometimes you can notice like, oh, I don't definitely don't want to do that. Play with small ways of doing it and notice what happens. It's like, oh, I guess the world didn't fall apart. I was late (laughs) to this meeting. It's like, okay, life goes on. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I think we can, many of us can relate to that. All right, so anyone else? Anyone online? Yes, come on up, Cheryl. Um, 
I guess since we've started talking about I see what you mean by it feels really close here. <laughs> it feels like feedback. Um, I've, I've noticed that my greed is about wanting things done quickly or wanting to get places quickly, and I'm really, really seeing that as a greed right now, you know, in the last yeah. few weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, what I find is when I'm feeling that way, I'm not being kind. There's mm-hmm. the, the unkindness. is the kind. It's unkind. I'm not mm-hmm. – so – if I if I apply kindness, if if I consciously realize that I that I'm in that state because it's very habitual, then I can, you know, do what you were saying. I I can then apply something that's not as as normal. Although I enjoy being kind, I have more peace when I'm kind. <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of like that for me. I guess. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it can be that the kind of like pattern, like trying to get. Th- things done quickly, it's like when you recognize that, you can... Somebody's in my way, and, you know, get out of my... Yeah, somebody's so can, in my way, and get out of my way. Someone's in your way, yes, yeah. you can say, okay, let me slow down, let me be patient, yeah. let me just sit down and say, I'm going to forget yeah. about time. And sometimes yeah. something, that can be a simple antidote that kind of puts you into that different mode. And again, it's like mm-hmm. noticing how does it, does it if that opens it up, that's great. Because mm-hmm. it kind of holds that whole perspective sometimes. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. Yeah. Right, Thanks, thank you, Cheryl. All right, anyone else? So many people, so few questions. (laughs) All right, David. My question is about greed, and one of the ways I avoid greed is I've started having a feeling of beneficialness. Like there's something I'm considering, and there's like one option that's good for me and good for others and good for everything. I can kind of feel that, and I can follow that energy. Mm. I'm wondering if the Dharma has anything to say about that. Yeah, there's a, there's a few suttas where the Buddha would go through this kind of inquiry around it, like what's the, I forget the exact phrasing, but basically what's the benefit and what's the drawback of things to kind of clearly notice is there any, any limitations around a choice, particularly around actions. And that kind of reflection, like, okay, is this benefit me? Does it benefit other people? Does it benefit everybody? There's no drawback, then go for it. But often we find that there's maybe partial benefit or it doesn't benefit this person or it doesn't benefit me or it doesn't benefit everything. And so you just see more clearly. Yeah, so that, that was a, a common one he would, you know, at least the way the sutras are presented, that there's kind of this noticing, you know, the, the effects of your actions, kind of anticipating what those might be. Thank you. You bet. In that sense of beneficialness, I like to always, you know, call forth what does that feel somatically, you know, as a body experience. There's a way the body kind of settles, a sense of alignment that comes from that, the sense of, okay, I can take a breath here. Even though it might feel a little edgy to do that, you can feel there's that quality of alignment. While going something that's not so beneficial, we often are going to have this kind of internal kind of churning that's going on, or maybe we're spending some time justifying why it's going to be, why this is an okay thing in this situation. 
And when you find yourself justifying it, that's a great time to just put a little pause on it. Just say, well, let me just open to this a little bit close, soon, more slowly, if you have the luxury of that. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of it. So you can reflect on it afterwards. But if you have the luxury, sit down with it. Go on some walking meditation with it. Get to know it more. Because, again, we're looking at part of what's the struggle of this is we have this very powerful force of delusion that's keeping us unconscious, keeping us tied to suffering. And it's so kind of wily and distorted and it's kind of very tricky. And it takes it does take a lot of uh, willingness to look and see more clearly. And it takes time to see that. And when you see more clearly, that's a moment of insight. That's a moment of, of clear seeing that transforms you. You don't get so tricked in the future. It's like, oh, I see that more clearly. I understand that in a deeper way as, as Beth, the Beths were talking about. And the Cheryl, another Cheryl, so again, the Cheryls. <laughs> All right, anyone else like to ask or share anything? All right, come on up. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Tim. I guess I don't fully understand what greed is because oftentimes I am struggling with uh, is it really a need or is it a greed? For example, hmm. I bought an inflatable paddleboard and that's nice to be on the water and am I being greedy? I think I could rent it sometimes and maybe not have so much plastic be bought by me and it goes into the garage after you know a few uses and the second apply to every situation pretty much i think or a lot of situations so i guess is there a reference frame that i should keep in mind uh, to define what greed is yeah it's a great question so what is what is greed you know and, and does that mean we can't have anything that's enjoyable or pleasurable or nice and, you know, sometimes, you know, we take it that way. We're going to be, you know, more austere or more, you know, renouncing life. But even you know, when we don't make those choices, we also have to see what's the underlying, underlying pattern. Because sometimes we can do those kind of choices based on, you know, still the underlying pattern of, of greed, hatred, and delusion may be operable. So I'd say, you know, greed, we can look at it in terms of, I think I talked about this last week, Notice your relationship to that that experience. So, like, let's say that that thing ends or goes away or gets stolen or something. You no longer have it. There's going to be naturally a little bit of disappointment about it. But if you're like, oh, my life is over or, like, something is really missing in my life or my happiness is so dependent upon that, that thing or that experience, then you can see there's a quality of stickiness or clinging. So I think it's often that clinging quality. And it's really that self-referencing quality that goes back. You know, this is who I am. This is what I am. I'm defined in some relationship to that experience. So that being said, I mean, often we, we have hobbies. We have things we do that we really enjoy. And it is kind of part of who we are. It just it becomes more, it just we don't hold it quite so tightly. There's kind of a fluidity around it. And you can notice that, like, if someone makes fun of your hobby and you feel like, oh, <laughs> then that's a good thing to know. Oh, there's, some, there's some stickiness around it, some identification. 
On the other hand, when we're able to kind of loosen that up, we can enjoy it freely. And when it's no longer there, when it changes or something else comes up, you know, it's winter season, so I'm doing some other activity, I can enjoy that. So it's it's really that that stickiness, that kind of conditionality that I think is often a flavor of greed. And it's very human. You know, it's very human. Of course, we want to have pleasurable experiences, pleasurable uh, possessions, pleasurable relationships. There's all these things we want pleasurable. It is how how much are we dependent upon those? You know, how my relationship to when things aren't so pleasant, when things aren't going so well, can I still have that place of um, you have ease, some level of peace in the midst of that too? Does that help? It's not a not a clear cut, and I guess from especially as lay practitioners, we grapple with this a lot more. If we're all monastics, we say, just give it all up. You know, it's simple. And but even then, you know, there there's still greed and hatred that arises in those communities. It just has a different form that comes up. And yeah, no, that's super helpful. I guess uh, what you're saying essentially is to think of uh, objects and experiences that enable you to be more free uh, and not be locked in into these patterns, a thing of uh, you can't live without them. Yeah, yeah, so that's when we, were, when we don't have the, the ability to shift the pattern or let go mm-hmm. of the pattern, I think that's where the suffering is going to be. It's not the fact that we have something pleasurable or enjoying something mm-hmm. pleasurable. It's more when the pattern gets more stuck. Yeah, thanks. Right. Thank you. All right, maybe one more if there's anything. Yes. Come on up. Who is first? I can't tell. Okay. Hi. Um, So this is kind of more just um, an experience I recently had that is um, kind of showed me the positive ways of kind of letting go of some of that. Cause I have some fairly controlling aspects to my nature mm-hmm. and project manager. I like things just so I like things to be fair. And, um, I have chickens, I have eggs and I give them away pretty freely. There's more eggs than I know what to do with. And I don't want to sell them because that's a lot of work. Um, but I met somebody through a garden exchange on Facebook and, and, um, we'd been, she'd been giving me free vegetables for like a year and um, we decided to start a barter trade for it. And, um, you know, so we were kind of negotiating, okay, I give her like six eggs every two weeks and she would give me some level of produce and, or, or starts. And um, I'm trying to like, I was trying to be very rigid about it. It's like, okay, this is, I got to make sure to give her these six eggs every two weeks. And then, and she just, treated it so casually. And at first that was like, kind of like, that's not what we're doing. This is a, this is like a financial transaction. And I, after kind of like, I just decided to just kind of let go of that and just like, just follow her lead on it. Um, and it has just been so rewarding. Like mm-hmm. just all the tips she gives for gardening. We've, we're becoming friends. Um, she just gives 
like I came back from Europe and I had no food in the fridge and she came by with like all this food and mm-hmm. produce and she didn't even need eggs. And then she's introduced me to somebody else who I think is of the similar um, mind wants to do trade with me. And, and um, I think he's also just like, I have all this to give. And it's like, whatever you want to give me is fine. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a, it was, it's been such a rewarding experience um, uh, to just kind of let go of that rigidness mm-hmm. and be so fully rewarded in such a short period of time. And I think that it's those kinds of experiences that help me, um, you know, remember. So like for the next right. time that it'll like, oh yeah, no, it's, it's okay to let go of some of these, these things. Um, so that was kind of my positive story of letting go of greed. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's that phrase like follow the money. It's like follow the suffering. Yeah. You know, where's the, like, your question is like, where is their suffering? It's like, if there's suffering, then pay attention to it. It's something, you know, some our attitude, the way we're relating to it. And often we say, okay, this kind of locks my attitude or my way things should be, or is it matching the situation? Maybe the situation doesn't have to change. Maybe the attitude needs to be let go of, just like you did. And then mm-hmm. that opened to this level of interconnection and generosity that, you know, was, was it possible from that, the place. So great. Thank you for sharing that.